We're wrapping up this series we've been calling Kingdom Come about the church actually bringing the kingdom of heaven here. So we've got a new friend around this. His name is Johnny Carr. He's here to teach us today, to share his passion. Johnny's been a full-time pastor. He was a full-time pastor in, in a church for 14 years. And then his passion, uh, he became gripped about social justice and orphan care. And so through that, he wrote a book. The book is called Orphan Justice. And we've got a little bit of an intro video that we'd like to share with you about Johnny, his family, and, and uh, what they do in the kingdom. So we want to show that. And then immediately after that video, would you uh, help me give Johnny a warm welcome from Montana? Let's watch this video, please. The more I began to study about orphans' lives, when we look at their distress, we find that poverty is part of their distress. Trafficking is part of their distress. Uh, living in orphanages is part of their distress. Uh, the foster care system itself is part of their distress. These are the things that affect the lives of orphans, and these are the issues that we as a church really have not done well in responding to. After Beth and I got married, I was working in the ministry and God had blessed us with two kids by birth, Heather and Jared, and we were just living the American dream. I was very fearful thinking about adopting a child because of the unknowns involved. Uh, but I could see that this was truly something that God had put on Beth's heart. This was something that, that was a part of who she was. When we adopted James and uh, we were able to visit his orphanage, it was a real eye-opener for us. The uh, special needs kids that were in his orphanage were languishing there, not because the caregivers didn't love them, but because they didn't have what they needed to supply those children with food and education and um, just the basic necessities of life. Special needs children, I think, are at higher risk of being given up because they can be a burden on a family. When I think about our church's response to this issue of adoption, I think back to the so many years that I have been pro-life, but now I consider myself whole life. It's more than just being against abortion. If we're going to be against abortion, we have to be pro-adoption. We have to be the first to speak up and make adoption an issue. As the church, we've got to be there. We've got to be at the front of the line and leading in the issue of adoption. There are so many complex social justice issues related directly to orphans' lives. My prayer is that the church will not see families with children with multiple special needs as burdens, but they will reach out to these families in a proactive way to say to them, you are a blessing to us, and it is an honor for us to serve your family. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be with you. And I'll just say right now, it's very uncomfortable to see my mug on that <laughs> screen like that so up close. Um, that is our family. We live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Not everyone there has a Southern accent, by the way. Uh, we're transplants from, uh, Beth and I grew up in Alabama. But uh, Heather is our oldest. Heather was born to us. And she is now 18 and a freshman in college at uh, Oklahoma Baptist University. I learned through Facebook the other day that she's now in a relationship, so that was great to be able to stay in touch. And uh, 
Jared is our 14-year-old. He's our music man. Everything he touches, he can play. And we, we're not sure where he gets that from. He was also born to us. Uh, but we're, we're not very musically inclined people, but he is for some reason. And then James came to us through adoption uh, from Central Asia. And uh, he is uh, deaf. James has a little bit of hearing, so he can, he can talk a little bit. And uh, he actually, just a few weeks ago, won third prize in a community talent show as a stand-up comedian. <laughs> Signing and talking, yeah. And I'll tell you more about his story a little later. And then Shaoli came to us also. Shaoli is profoundly deaf. Uh, she was six years old when we adopted her. Uh, she's also from the same area that James is from, and she's our sweetheart. She's the one with a tender heart and always caring for everybody in the family. And then there's JJ. JJ is our little fellow that we adopted through the foster system uh, out of Florida. Uh, JJ was born at 25 weeks. He was a pound and three ounces, and he also had a diaphragmic hernia when he was born, which means that his stomach was up in his chest, and so his lungs weren't developed his esophagus had not developed properly, and so he had to have a surgery with a fund application where they lower the stomach down, tie off the esophagus, and insert a G-tube. And so he received his nutrition through that G-tube up until about a year ago, uh, where then he started eating, but everything has to be pureed. And let me tell you, you haven't lived until you've had ravioli pureed, <laughs> eating it like soup. It's pretty gross. That and green beans. Uh, <laughs> But he's doing great. We just had the G-tube removed uh, surgically and uh, closed that up so it's a permanent close. And uh, he is uh, learning little by little uh, how, to, how to eat properly. And matter of fact, we had a huge celebration the other night because he ate a macaroni noodle. And for him to chew that up and swallow, it's a big, big deal. He'll be six years old next week. So that's our clan. And uh, Beth and I have been married 20 years uh, 17 of those happy, three years of those learning, and uh, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Let's look at a story in Luke chapter 10, one of the most familiar stories in all of Scripture, uh, probably other than uh, the, the resurrection story and the birth of Jesus story, is the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, it's a very common term within our, our American culture. Uh, there's a Good Samaritan law. Uh, and there's, remember the last episode of Seinfeld was the Good Samaritan uh, episode. And so it's, it's certainly something that's within our culture, but it, most people would just think that it's when someone does something good for someone else, right? But there's a lot more to the story of the Good Samaritan. And so I want us to dive into that this morning and take a look at what Scripture has to teach us from that story. I'm going to start reading in verse 25 because this kind of sets it up of why Jesus told the story. It says, one day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now this was not a friendly question. This was a question meant to try to trick Jesus because this man was an expert in religious law. And Jesus replied, well, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? So Jesus is already turning the tables on him as he commonly did by asking him a question. And so he answered and replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. You remember Barney Fife? You remember when Barney got the right answer to something that chest would poke out? I can almost envision this guy doing that. 
But something happens right here as he starts into the end of this question that I can almost envision just like when Barney had something wrong, how he would just deflate. As this guy started to deflate, because as he got to the end of this, I believe he's starting to realize that once again, Jesus has turned the tables on him. As he gets to the last phrase of that, where he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. I think he knew he had not loved his neighbor as much as he had loved himself. The people around him knew it, and Jesus certainly knew it. And so as we continue reading, Jesus said, right, do this, and you will live. And so the man wanted to justify his actions. One translation of the Bible right here uses this phrase, looking for a loophole. <laughs> he knew Jesus had turned the tables on him, and he needed to get out of this. And so looking for a loophole, he decides to get into the definition of neighbor. And he says, well, just who is my neighbor? Who qualifies as my neighbor? And it's that question that Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And he says, Jesus replied and said, a Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. And a temple assistant, uh, most versions here actually use the, uh, uh, the, uh, a, a different word. They say, walked over and looked at him lying there. They use the word Levite. But he also passed him by on the other side of the road. Then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man... He felt compassion for him. So going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. And then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. And the next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins and told him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I will pay you the next time I'm here. And then he looked at this expert and said, now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits? It's interesting the way this expert replies. Notice in the story that when, when Jesus introduces the Samaritan, he calls him the despised Samaritan. To go back and understand the culture of the day is to understand that the Jews hated the Samaritans. They had a nickname for them called the half-breeds, and it was the ultimate of all insults. And Jesus is saying to him, that's your neighbor. And it's just interesting the way this man even replies when Jesus says... So which one is neighbor? And he replied, the one who showed mercy. It's as if he can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. He despised them so much. It's a phenomenal story that Jesus uses to answer that question for this expert in the law. I, I love to kind of bring it up to a modern day version. Flying in yesterday, this was my first time in to your incredibly beautiful state, by the way. Absolutely gorgeous. 
And as we were flying in yesterday, I'm looking out the window and I'm seeing all these open roads and then in the valleys and then heading up the mountains. Imagine yourself this time of the year out on one of those roads and a road that's pretty deserted and you know that you're probably going to be the only car on that road that night and a deer jumps out in front of you and you end up in the ditch. And your car's busted up, it's not going to work, you can't get it out of the ditch, your cell phone's busted up, or, or maybe like me, you've got Sprint and you can't get a signal around here. <laughs> but you, you can't call for help, you can't get any help, and you're thinking, well, good night, this is how my life's going to end out here, and, 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 and you can't walk back that way, you can't walk that way, it's too far for any help, and, and, and just as you're about to give up, you hear a car coming, and you're thinking to yourself, Oh my, I mean, there's never a car out here. This is a miracle. And as the car gets closer, you look inside, and not only is it any car, it's Pastor Brian. And you're thinking, oh Lord, you're going to save me, my pastor, right here, the time I needed him the most. And he looks at you, and you look at him, and he drives right on by. (laughs) You think, now wait a minute, Lord, this is not how this is supposed to work. This would have made for a great movie. We'd be on the news tonight. And And then you hear another car. This time it's something bigger. And as it gets closer, it's a big van. And man, you see right on the front, Journey Church. And you're thinking, well, that's why he didn't stop there. The elders and the Sunday school or the small group leaders and the other leaders of the church are in the van. And they slow down and look at you and you look at them and they just drive right on by. That's the picture that Jesus has painted here. The priests and the Levites. The priests are as this version uses temple assistants. These were the religious leaders of the day. That when this man was in his time of need, the most he had ever had in his life, he was laying there waiting to die unless someone helped him. It was the religious leaders. It was the church that stepped to the other side of the road. And as you're wondering why this would happen this way, you hear another car. Boom, 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 boom. You think, oh, no, not the teenagers. <laughs> and the car stops and psh, it sits down and out they jump and pull up their pants and say, how can I help? <laughs> why did the Samaritan stop? What was different about the Samaritan? And I think there's four things that we can dive into and answer about it. Because what we know is he took on the pain of this man who was hurting. He entered into this man's journey. He entered into this man's part of his life when he was hurting and beat up and bloodied and bruised and left on the side of the road. And something in him knew that he just couldn't pass by. But he stopped And he entered into that pain with him. And let me tell you something. The way that God wired us, when we do that, when we enter into the pain of someone else's life, it will cost us. As the video said, love is costly. So I want us to look at the four things that it cost this man. Number one, it cost him emotionally. It says that his heart was moved. It says that he had empathy for this man and and, and he entered into this pain with him. This is the real meaning of fellowship. Coffee together, that's good. Having cake together or dinner together in fellowship, yeah, that's good. 
But real, meaningful fellowship happens when we enter into our friends or even strangers' pain. And we go, and as we do that, we can't just walk away and feel numb. We walk away and we're hurting with them. It's cost us emotionally because we've decided to invest into their hurt and invest into their life. We see from rescue responders that many of them have to take early retirements after they go and get involved in mass, massive uh, things that have, where destruction has taken place, like in 9-11 or in Banda Aceh years ago after the tsunami came and swept through there. And, and the same thing will happen with many of those working in the Philippines right now. And, and, and they're going to need counseling. They're going to need help as they come away from the death and destruction of being there and working in it day after day after day. But it's the way God wired us to emotionally connect with others. And when we enter into that pain, it'll cost us emotionally and our heart changes. The second thing that we see that it cost him was some time. You see, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was actually a, a road of commerce. If you were on this road, typically you were on it to go and do business in one or the other of the cities. And so the bandits would, it was strategic for them to wait for people to be on this road because they would either have money with them or they would have goods. They'd either went and bought some things or they were taking some things to sell or they had their money to go do the same. But typically if you were on that road, you had stuff. And so it was strategic for these bandits to hide out on that road and beat them up. So the point is you wanted to get from point A to point B as quickly as you possibly could. You had an agenda. And the agenda was just to stay safe and just get there as quickly as possible. In our American culture, our schedule dictates our lives. We live in a culture where time is important and time is precious and we, we have a saying what? Time is money and money is time. I know in our family, we have a Google calendar that we've set up. And we tell our kids, if it ain't on the calendar, it ain't happening. If you've got band practice, you better have it on the calendar so we can make sure somebody's home to get you there. If you've got a doctor's appointment, if you've got ball practice, if you've got whatever it is, it need, we all have our agendas. We all have our schedules to keep. Many of you that have traveled internationally, you know that we're one of the few countries that really are that concerned about it. I was in Ethiopia, and I was supposed to preach at a 3 o'clock worship service, and we arrived in the city at 3.30 and met the pastor for coffee, and we had to have coffee for an hour before we could go to the worship service. We didn't get there until 5 o'clock, and they were all happy about it. The pastor was laughing at me because I was upset and, you know, and all worried, He's like, you silly Americans. <laughs> and what happens is we get so focused on our schedules, we get so focused on our agendas that we just put a blinders on to those who are hurting around us. Because if we stop and help them, God forbid, we might miss a meeting. The third thing that it cost him was some comfort. Again, this road was very dangerous. Matter of fact, this road had a nickname. It was called the Bloody Way because there were so many people beat up on the road. So it may be, it may be that the priests and the Levites didn't stop because they were too scared to stop. 
It may have been that they just rationalized and justified in their minds that this is just crazy to stop and help this guy. I mean, there's one guy already that's going to die. If I stop and help him, there might be two of us. I remember several months ago, I was in Chicago, and I had been on the south side for some meetings, and I was driving back up to the airport to fly home at, at Midway Airport. And if you know anything about Chicago, from the south side to Midway, that section between is the rough section. That's where the gang activity and all this kind of stuff is. And so I'm just following my GPS to the airport, but I had to stop and fuel up my car before turning it in, the rental car. And so I just, you know, put in gas station that's close to the airport, and here I go, and I, I stop, and I get out of my car, and I start to fuel, and I look around, and I'm thinking, yeah, this, this is the neighborhood you see on TV. This is the news, you know, and I'm, and I'm thinking, stay focused, don't make eye contact with anyone, just get the gas in as quickly as possible, get your receipt, and get out. And as I'm fueling it up, it's as if God spoke to me in an audible voice saying, hey, big boy, you know, you preach that sermon all the time. What if there were a lady's car broken down across the street? Would you have the guts to go and help her? Fortunately, the gas thing clicked. <laughs> I hung the nozzle up and got in the car and got away from there. And I said, wait, what, Lord, what were you saying? Can we finish that conversation now that I'm out of that? I think many of us, we don't stop and enter into others' pains because we're just, it's just too risky. We rationalize and we justify. Lord, this is just too much. I mean, what, what if something happened to me? What if this makes my life uncomfortable? What if I get beat up? What if... And we just have all of our excuses. Maybe it wasn't that the priests and the Levites were cold-hearted. Maybe it was that they were just too scared. The last thing we see that it cost him was some money. And when that happens, we have a change of budget. He took out first his oil and his wine, expensive stuff, and he poured them on the man's sores. The oil was for soothing and the wine was like a disinfectant for healing. And then he put him on his own animal, took him to the inn, took care of him there, took the two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper on the next day and said, I've got to continue on my business. I don't know how long he will need to stay, but you let him stay as long as he needs to. Give him whatever he needs. Give him room service, whatever the guy needs. Take care of him. And when I come back through, whatever he rings up on the bill, I'll pay for it. Sometimes when we enter into the pain of others, Sometimes it will even cost us our own hard-earned money. And it causes a change in our budget that we've worked so hard to protect. Now I want you to understand something. I did not come to Montana to tell you that I'm a good Samaritan. I came to confess that for many, many years I was that priest that kept stepping to the other side of the road. You see, I love being in the ministry when you got the good stuff. I love being in the ministry when you got the perks. I loved it when, when some guy would stop by the office and say, hey, I want to take you out for a nice lunch today, my treat. I like that part. 
I liked it when somebody would show up or call or send an email and say, hey, I've got two tickets to the Auburn game this weekend, and I'm going to take you up to Auburn, and we're going to sit and watch them beat Alabama. That's going to happen Saturday, by the way. <laughs> I know everybody's against Alabama, right? Just anybody beat them. I love the good parts of ministry. I love the little perks like that. I love doing the weddings. I loved all the happy stuff. But it was that risky stuff. It was that entering into people's pain and, and all those types of things that wasn't so fun. But one day I realized that the one who was beat up and bloodied and bruised and left on the side of the road was my son. Not by birth and not even legally, but in our hearts. You see, to back up, I met Beth in college. We were at Jacksonville State University in Northeast Alabama. And on our campus there, we had a building called the Baptist Campus Ministries. And it was run by the, the Baptist of the state. And it was this nice little safe haven for all of us little Baptist boys and girls to go to and, and, and know that we didn't have to be involved in all the other stuff of the university. And, and so we would go and hang out there. And we had our worship services during the week. And we had lunches and different things. It was just a cool place to go and hang out during the day if you were skipping class like I usually did. And, and so uh, one night we're having a worship service. And we had a girl there who was deaf. And so she, of course, had an interpreter signing for her. Well, the interpreter was Beth. That was my first time to meet Beth and see Beth. Uh, the girl who she was signing for, who was deaf, was Heather Whitestone. Many of you remember Heather. About two years after that, she would become Miss America, the first Miss America with a disability. Well, I thought Beth was prettier than Heather, so I chased her around. And uh, our relationship began to get serious fairly quickly and one of the things that she told me early on, she said, you need to understand that whoever I marry will need to agree that we will adopt a deaf child one day. So I looked her straight in the eyes and said, honey, I have dreamed of that all my life. Where have you been? <laughs> Lie number one. <laughs> I never really thought that would happen. We, got, we continued to get serious. We got married. God blessed. We found ourselves in uh, 2005 serving at the fastest growing church in the panhandle of Florida in Pensacola. We were living eight miles from the beach. We had our perfect little house, our perfect little family, one girl, one boy. Heather and Jared were great kids. We were living the American dream. The only thing we didn't have was the white picket fence because of that homeowners association. Give a guy a little power and he goes crazy, right? And so here we are living our American dream. And my missions pastor said, hey, Johnny, we've got a friend coming through town tonight who's a missionary in Belarus. And he works with the deaf there. So I thought Beth would be interested in meeting him and hearing his story. And I thought, well, yeah, that would be great. So we go out to dinner with this missionary. And he begins to tell us about his ministry in Belarus with the deaf people. But it wasn't just deaf people he was working with. It was a deaf orphanage with all of these deaf children. And, and I knew that I needed to get out of that place quickly <laughs> because those memories of those conversations were coming up again. And so we got home from that. That was in January of 2005. And, and that began a series of conversations for me and Beth. And in February, first Monday night, I came home from a deacon's meeting and Heather and Jared were in the bed and it was only Beth and I up and we were talking and, you know, this was becoming a sore spot in our marriage at this point. And this was something God had really put in her heart. 
This was something she felt like God really had as a plan for her life. And, and I was just scared about the whole process. I wasn't scared about having another child. I wasn't even scared about having a deaf child. And so that night, you know, we had a conversation and I said, well, tomorrow I will call and I will get the information that I need. How much is it going to cost? How long is it going to take? You know, all that stuff. And so I got on the internet the next morning and typed in Belarus International Adoption and came up with an agency and uh, called the guy up, shared a little bit with him. And he said, Belarus is shut down. You cannot adopt from that country. Uh, tell me a little bit more about what you're thinking. And I said, well, a deaf child under the age of six. And I gave this disclaimer, no other disabilities. Now think fast forward to JJ. I said, I can't handle any other disabilities. And he said, well, if I ever hear of anything, I'll let you know. Ten minutes later, he called and said, check your email. And when I did, this is what I saw. He's not that sweet, so just stop that. <laughs> that picture actually is probably the day he was abandoned. And one of the first things they do is, is to take a picture. Uh, but seven months to the day later, we found ourselves in his city. Heather and Jared were with us, as you can see there. All these pictures were taken just literally a couple of hours after he came to our hotel room. And the next day, they, we loaded up together and we went over to the city where his orphanage was to have a meeting with the staff. And as we pulled into the gates of the orphanage, James kind of looked like, hey, I know this place. But then as we stopped the van and we started to get out, he put his head on my shoulder and put his arm around me as if to say, oh, well, that was fun. And because he didn't have any language, I couldn't explain to him what was happening. We couldn't say to him that, no, you're my son now. You're not going back to that orphanage to stay anymore. So we went in and we had a meeting in the main part of the office area. And then they wanted to take us and show us the rest of the orphanage. And we walked outside and we came into this courtyard area. And in that courtyard, there were about 25 special needs kids, all in these little makeshift high chairs. They were kind of low to the ground with, a, with like a tray on the front. The kids couldn't get in and out on their own. And there was a hole in the seat with a pan underneath it. And the kids literally just sat there all day. And they had no life to them. They didn't point at us. They didn't grunt. They didn't giggle. They didn't, just didn't move at all. And it's, I don't remember if we even stopped there or not. But then we walked over into the baby room. And as we walked into the baby room... I remember looking, there was just beds, as many as they could possibly get in there. And there were two babies in each bed, feet to feet. All of these kids were special needs as well. And they were dying. We found out that 95% of the special needs children that entered that orphanage passed away within the first year. And as I stood there looking in those beds, I remember thinking, I can't let Heather and Jared see what I'm seeing. And I pushed them back towards the door. And I'm still holding James. And when I did, James just lost it and just began to scream. And his grip around my neck got so tight that he literally started choking me. I want you to understand those workers cared for those kids. Those workers loved those kids. They didn't have the resources they needed to take care of them. But in that moment... God began to change and challenge everything about my life. 
He began to challenge my theology. He began to challenge my thoughts about church growth and how we do church. And he began to challenge me in my own budget. And he began to challenge me in the way that we lived our personal lives. Coming home from that trip, my next responsibility as a pastor in that church was to raise $10 million for a new building. And one of the things that I learned was a, a group of, called Love Without Boundaries was coming to that area a few weeks later. And it cost them $250 to do surgeries for babies with cleft lips and cleft palates to help them survive. And everything in my world was just getting rocked. And I was trying to have them to rebalance all of this stuff and trying to figure it all out because I had been exposed for the first time to extreme poverty for the least of these. The most helpless of the helpless. And I began to look in Scripture and I began to dig in to see what does God's word have to say about orphans? What does, what does God's word have to say about this whole idea of adoption? And as I looked in, it's clear throughout the Old Testament that there, there's this, this pattern of the, the orphan, the widow, and the alien. And, and basically what God is saying here is that these are the helpless of the helpless. And that we have a responsibility to care for them. And they have a special plate in place in God's own heart. And then I get to the New Testament and, and there's that one big verse that just is so clear in James 1.27. Now remember James, the book of James, he gives us a lot of stuff where James says, do this and don't do that and do this and don't do that. And James is, the, the, the verse that a lot of people know from James is where he says that faith without works is dead. But yet in 1 verse 27, he says this, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, caring for orphans and widows in their distress and keeping oneself unspotted from the world. Caring for orphans and widows in their distress. And it was that phrase that caught my attention. And I began to ask the question, what is their distress? How many orphans are there? What does this even mean? And as I pulled back and I began to study the reality, the reality is that the, the number given by UNICEF is 153 million orphans, orphan and vulnerable children in the world today. That means that they've lost one or both parents. Only about 18 million that sounds odd, only. 18 million children have lost both of their parents. So why would we qualify these other kids as orphaned or vulnerable if they've only lost one parent? Because in most developing countries, if you lose your father, you lose rights. And two-thirds of the time, these kids lose their fathers first. You lose the right to land ownership. You lose the right to getting an education for your children. You lose the right to getting a job. You lose the right to education. You lose the rights to even getting medical care. I have a good friend named Tendai who grew up in Zimbabwe. And Tendai's father died when he was 12 years old. And when he tells his story, he says, Johnny, you, you, the dirt on my father's grave was not even settled he says, he said, as he sets it up, he says, the dirt was still red as the red sun was setting over our village when the men of the village had a meeting to determine what his future would be, even though his mother was still alive. And from that day forward, he said, I was called an orphan. This is the reality. 
And so when there is no ed- access to education and land ownership and all this, we, these kids end up living in extreme poverty. And then that's when things like HIV and AIDS, that's when extreme poverty, that's when things like trafficking, these kids all become victims to these ills of our society. That's the reality of where many of them are. And then we look at our own country. It's easy to point our fingers at other countries. We look at our own country and realize that over 450,000 kids are in the foster care system on any given day in the United States. 450,000 kids. Over 100,000 of those kids are what we call free for adoption. Here's what that means. A judge has already stepped into their case and said that those kids can never go back to their original family. They have, they've been through so much abuse or neglect, those parents have terminated their own rights to be parents for that child or children. Now listen, these little, these 100,000, they're not blonde-haired, blue-eyed little infants. These are kids that are 3 years old or 8 years old or 12 years old or 16 years old. Many of them have bounced around from house to house to house through the foster care system. Many of them have been on the receiving end of abuse and neglect. Many of them are like my JJ that have multiple medical issues. And we have to stop and ask ourselves, where's the church? Just a few weeks ago, you may have seen on the news down in South Florida, in Clearwater, a young boy, 14 years old, who had been in the foster care system his entire life. His mother was in prison when he was born. And he never got to live with his mom, but he always hoped that she'd get better. And he finally learned earlier this year through an internet search that she had passed away. And so at that point, he gave up and he asked his social worker, would you let me go to a church and ask and see if I can find a family? And so she took him to a church that Sunday and he stood up in the pulpit at the end. And he said, I just want a family. I don't care if it's a mom or a dad or both. I don't care if you're black, white, red, purple. I don't care. I just want a family. How backwards is that? How backwards is that that there are kids who are waiting for families? There should be families waiting to adopt kids like him. Where have we been as the church? And now listen, adoption is not for everyone. Foster care is not for everyone. James 1.27 says, Pure and undefiled religion is caring for orphans and widows in their distress. There are multiple ways that we can get involved. Not everyone needs to adopt. Not everyone needs to foster. But there are other ways that we can get involved. On your sheet that you received when you, when you came in today, on the bottom there are three things listed right there that you can do. Maybe you need to be a person who writes a check for families who are willing to adopt a child. Maybe you need to be the one that, that offers that kind of help. There's an adoption fund here that you can give to that supports those families. Maybe you're a nurse. Maybe you have some medical background. And if there's a family willing to adopt someone like JJ, that you would step in and say, you know what? Once a month, I'm going to babysit. I know how to do the G-tubes. I know how to do the, the oxygen. I know how to handle all that stuff. One night a month, I'm yours for free. That's my ministry to you. Maybe you need to be the one that's just the pat on the back. Or a note of encouragement. One of the greatest gifts Beth and I ever received is right before we left Pensacola, Lou and Gabby Boyd had us over for dinner. 
Gabby was on a World War II ship back in the day, both in their 80s, 80s. Both of them actually passed away this past year. But before we left, Gabby and Lou had us over for dinner. And they said, we're too old to adopt, but we just want you to know we love what you're doing and we wanted to just prepare a meal for you to say thank you. And I looked at them and said, thank you for doing orphan care. And, and, and Lou said, Johnny, I just told you we can't do anything. I said, no, you're doing it now by ministering to us as we minister to our kids. You can buy coffee. Look at the second one there. $2.50 a bag goes this weekend. Or you can sponsor kids to be able to stay with their families. I love this ministry. The first one listed here, bring love in for $39 a month. You can help keep kids with their families in Ethiopia to keep them from becoming orphaned and having to live in orphanages. Take a look at this video where it shows how you can get involved in what they're doing. An orphan living in an orphanage, they, they have nothing. They have no identity to call their own. But what we are giving them is, is an identity, is a place to call home, is a family to belong to. They have the ability to be a child and not worry about what they're going to eat or where they're going to sleep that night, who's going to take care of them. The children cannot grow up in orphanages. It's not a, it's not a, a place for kids to live. family came here to Ethiopia because we felt that God had called us to come and care for orphans. We've been on such a journey, but it feels like every day we learn more about who He is and more about who God wants us to be and wants us to become in our lives. You have your info cards. You can sign up right now to sponsor these families for $39 a month and just write on here, bring love in and turn that in. Or there's a place in the lobby where you can get information on all these different things of ways that you can get involved. And, and let, me, let me share this. Look, we don't do this out of guilt. We don't do this out of pressure. We do this, we love because he first loved us. And some of you might even be here today and you don't, you don't get all of this because this whole walking with Jesus thing and becoming a Christ follower and all that is still something you're just checking out. Look, the whole idea of adoption actually comes from what we learn in Scripture where Jesus shares that he has, what he did on the cross is that he actually adopts us into God's family. Paul writes about it this way. He says, God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. 
And now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. Could you imagine finding out that you had been adopted into a king's family and that you have now become an heir to the whole kingdom? In every sense of that, when we become Christ followers, when we accept the work of the cross, when we accept the gospel, we are literally adopted into God's family and made an heir to everything that he has to offer us. And we're all on equal ground. And we're all on equal footing. You might say, well, Johnny, you don't know about my past. If you understood my past, you would know there's no way I could be on equal ground with somebody like Billy Graham. Yes, you can. Because with adoption and with the gospel, it's not the past that matters, it's the future. I don't know anything about my kids' past before we actually met them. Because it doesn't matter. But they now have a new family. They have a new name. They have a new future. And they have a new hope. And they have the Carr family name, whether that's good, bad, or indifferent. And one day, Beth and I will die. And those five kids are going to sit around the table with some attorney. And he's not going to look at Heather and Jared and say, how do you two want to split this up? He's going to look at all five. And their biggest problem that day is going to be dividing $14 by five kids. <laughs> this is the gospel. The gospel never forces us to do anything. Actually, the gospel frees us to do everything that God is calling us to do. And it's in that power that we live. And in that power that we take a risk. And it's in that power that we invest in the lives of those who are hurting. And say it's worth it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for how you've worked. God, I just thank you for the incredible...